This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Gratitude. Helen Keller, with, I think, remarkable plainness, Sometimes in the absence of living, people have to get verbose and complicated with their words. But sometimes there is such profound life, um, the words don't have to be flowery. I remember one time reading through a set of, a book of quotes. I came to the most innocuous quote about giving. And I can't even remember it, it was so innocuous. But it was so simple. In the midst of quotes from everybody from Voltaire to Eisenhower was this little one-line quote about giving. And I remember thinking to myself immediately, Nettie, I thought, well, that's not much of a quote about giving. And then the tagline beneath it was Mother Teresa. And all of a sudden, it was profound because it was weighted by the gravity of her life. And Helen Keller weighted with the gravity of life with profound plainness, born of her own plight. She once said, I have often thought it would be a blessing if each human being were stricken blind and deaf, take a moment and think about blindness, the inability to hear. I've often thought it would be a blessing if each human being were stricken blind and deaf for a few days at some point during their early adult life. It would make them more appreciative of sights and the joys of sound. The famed Dr. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, a lot of you have read him and you do not, honestly, you just don't need to get through life unless you've read some of Viktor Frankl. And if you want to start with Viktor Frankl's start, I think Frankl lived until 97, into his 90s. But this famed neurologist and psychiatrist wrote a book that is a classic of the 20th century called Man's Search for Meaning. And that's where to start. Small book, but don't get through life without reading Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. I think he entered the concentration camps as a pretty eminent doctor an eminent psychiatrist, probably around the age of 40. Uh, There in the concentration camps, he suffered terribly. Uh, His eminence in terms of his medicine saved his life because he was utilized greatly in every camp that he was in. But in those camps, he lost his father, Gabriel. He lost his mother, Elsa. Lost her to the gas chambers, actually. He lost his wife, Tilly. They were in the first concentration camp together and then they were torn apart. She went to one, he went to the other, and she died there. Uh, He lost his brother, uh, also his brother, Walter. He and his sister, Stella, were the only two people of the immediate family who actually survived the death camps. Frankel's life after the death camp, post 45, was devoted to psychological health and specifically it was devoted to psychological healing. Ultimately, if you know anything about Frankl, this is what you know. He believed people are primarily driven by a striving to find meaning in life. 
And I can tell you this about Franklin, his spirituality. He believed there was meaning in life, not just that which you made up. He was a deeply spiritual man. He believed that if meaning were found, no matter the circumstance, if someone found meaning, and I look over and I see Barbara and those that work in psychological sciences, and I think they know this so much to be true, and all of us know it practically, whether we're involved in those sciences professionally or not, Frankel believed that if meaning were found, it could enable people to overcome the most painful of circumstances. People could get through just about anything if they had a bullet to bite, and that bullet was somehow some sense of transcendent meaning beneath the pain of their own biology and experience. Uh, the book we know in the English-speaking world, I mentioned a moment ago, Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote a lot of books, but that's where to start. That book was originally titled, and I didn't know this until this week, it was titled in German originally, Saying Yes to Life in Spite of Everything. A psychologist experiences the concentration camp. In the book, there are so many quotes that we've all lived with through the years, but some of the more famous quotes uh, Frankl said, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. He went on to say everything, and this is perhaps my most memorable line for me. It's one that I had and I put up on the back of my car visor, put it up on my mirror in the vanity before. Everything can be taken from a person but one thing the last of the human freedoms, and that is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstance, to choose one's own way. This from a man we back up a moment and remember again, lost father, mother, wife and brother, and many others. Everything can be taken from you, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, and that is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Frankel, as a psychiatrist, was at the cusp of understanding that is even more prolific now, and that is that there are people who have physiological problems in their brain that even press into the reality of this thing called choice. That notwithstanding, most of us with healthy enough brains have the ability to choose our own way. A year's sermons could not exhaust the profound truths that Dr. Frankel posited, but I wanna just press into a little bit of what he said. He often spoke of the fact, and this is all through his books, I've probably read a half a dozen of his writings and listened to him speak, but he often spoke of the fact that the prisoners in the camps dream deeply in the night. They cried out and you could tell that the dreams or the cries were born of dreams. We were a dreaming people for dreams were all we had. And he said in the day we rehearsed our dreams with one another. And the dreams were always about the same things. There was no winning of lotteries 
There was no second home on the French Riviera. There was no dreaming to finish terminal degrees and even be married. We spoke in the day of our dreams that came in the dark night. We were doctors, lawyers, judges, teachers, professors, engineers, janitors, plumbers, seamstresses, politicians, preachers, rabbis. And yet our common denominator was our dreams. For young and all, old, we all dreamed of bread, cakes, and warm baths. The very things in retrospect that we took for granted every day before the camp. Frankel observed that he and his fellow prisoners little by little as their bodies wasted away filling out the words of 2 Corinthians 4 that our outer man is perishing but often the inverse is true our inner man is being renewed. Frankel said I watched as our ribs protruded more profoundly as simultaneously we began to appreciate beauty as we never had before. In one poignant piece, he said, if someone had seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp, if someone could have simply seen the look in our eyes as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits of white glowing in the sunset, if someone could have seen our faces as they peered through those little barred windows of our prison carriage, they would have never believed that those were the faces of people who had given up all hope of life and liberty. But despite that fact, Frankel said, or maybe indeed because of that fact, we stood there freezing cold and scared, carried away by nature's beauty which we had missed our entire lives. As we continue our series on original virtue, the abundant life that Jesus came to bring, today we're taking up the second of a dozen virtues that we'll be looking at through the months of May, June, and July. Last week we explored the virtue of wisdom. Today I just want to say a little bit more about gratitude, about gratefulness about thankfulness, about appreciation. I got a pretty gold watch on today. You can almost tell the time from where you're sitting looking at those big numbers. Nina and I were in the car the other day. We had just left Cece's Pizza and she strapped us on my arm and she said, Dad, even, that, that, even though that only costs 50 cents, you know those claws that the kids put the money in and reach down and get things? She said, I think that that probably would run about $300 in any fine jewelry store. <laughs> I didn't know Geneva was spelled with two eyes. Did you? It's even one of those good stretchy bands like granddad always had. We talked about the watch a while, Tanya, and we got on down the road and she said, well, and I said, what? And she said, 
Nothing. <laughs> a little bit later, she said, she mused to herself in a huff, still hadn't heard the magic word. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And in my mind, I thought, thank, thank you for taking the $3 out of my pocket that I told you not to go play that stupid game with the claw and doing it anyway and winning me this fine Geneva watch. How sharper than a serpent's tooth, opined King Lear. is to have a thankless child. Said Michael Levine, the sign outside the doors of salvation says be grateful. The person who has stopped being thankful has fallen asleep in life, so said Robert Louis Stevenson. And Cicero is credited the apothem, a thankful heart is the parent of all virtues. And I look out and I see Kelly and Blaine Holiday. Where are they? Oh, there. And I'm so thankful. I'm so, I look at y'all and I think about everybody else in the church that does so much, but these people work their fingers to a bone, making a living, and if you drove by any of the past few weekends, up until midnight, sometime on Friday, Saturday night, you'll see their cars out there, and you need to go up and look at the youth house. Of their own accord, they've renovated the thing beautifully. Just lovely. And we are so thankful. And knowing that it's more blessed to give than receive, and that you got a kid in the youth group, thankful we have long debated which of the virtues is the greatest Cicero said it's the parent of all virtues and philosophers and religionists have been debating that from Aristophanes the Greek to Anselm and Aquinas the Christian we've been arguing about which is the greatest virtue which is the virtue that is the primal virtue that all of the others extend from what's the progenitor of all virtues And I've got to tell you, I am reluctant to place gratitude, as Cicero did, at the top of the list, but I will tell you, I am inclined to place it in the top three. When I think about virtues, Michael, the thing I think about is not just what I want to be, what I feel like is the image of God inside of me, but the thing that really makes me wrap my mind around virtues as a father is when I think about the kind of life I want my children to live the kind of person I want them to be. And when I think about all of the virtues, arguments notwithstanding, I've got to tell you, gratitude in terms of what I want my children to be has got to be, Lee, in the top three. Believing as I do in the givenness of life, believing that life is a gift, it stands to reason to me that our first position as human beings is that of recipients. I'm gonna say that again, it's so simple. 
but our first posture and position. And, and position before it's a posture. Our first position in life is that of receiver, recipient. And if our position is that of receiver and recipient, then our disposition or our response to our position should be that of gratitude or gratefulness. It just seems to me at the substrate, the foundation of our character, looking at my children down at the bedrock of their character should be a heart of gratitude. Forgive me as I just look around, I think about everybody and all the stuff you guys do. I see William Guy standing back there, shifting back and forth. Dr. William Guy, a guy with a PhD from a great institution. And I think about how he stepped forward and said, I'd love to help with congregational care. And you, we, don't have a dime to pay him right now. And a guy like that steps up, rich and robust life. You know why we had 330? 330 people at meal groups last month. You know why? Not because we all showed up, because Dr. Geis put it together as a volunteer. Pam, in a little bit, you're going to get up at the end of service and an elder dedicated her life, teacher of the year in Williamson County, that, just that kind of person. And she's an incredible elder here that leads a prayer ministry and she's gonna get up and remind you that you can be a part of the prayer ministry, but even more, she's gonna remind you that when you need prayer and somebody around here says we're praying for you, it's not perfunctory. There are people that Pam actually leads that are praying all the time for people in this church. Gratitude. The Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey and he had just finished up moving through the churches of Galatia where he had established them on his previous journey. And the best laid plans of mice and men, he had tidied things up there and he looked up to northern Turkey, Asia Minor, which was called uh, Bithynia then. He looked up and he said, well, I'm gonna go up there now and preach the gospel. And that night in a dream, uh, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go and he heard somebody over in Europe across the Via Ignatia, that road from Byzantia in the east to Rome in the west, Philip of Macedon's domain, northern Greece, he saw a Macedonian man saying, please come and share the gospel with us. And the next day he couldn't shake it off, so he turned away from his plans and he went across the top of the Aegean Sea and he arrived at a little place called Philippi. Actually, it was a pretty sizable Roman colony, and he established a church there that we know as the Philippian church. The Philippian church contrasts starkly with Paul's challenging relationship with a lot of the other churches that he planted. Right now on Wednesday night, we've been walking through the Corinthian letters. <laughs> Man, he had some challenges with those folks. Almost every church he had a challenge with. I mean, they were new churches. Church problems didn't start in the 20th 21st century, all the way back then, Paul was just replete with problems in the church and between him and the church leaders, and it was just on and on and on in his letters. But not so. You read the book of Philippians, and it was all about mutual affection and this beautiful harmony between Paul and the church. He actually wrote uh, the letter, this pastoral 
letter to the beloved congregation late in his ministry. Some say it may have been earlier, that's arguable, but we, we don't know all the details of where and when he wrote, except we do know that the place of his composition was a prison. Now again, scholarship is, was it early in his life and was he imprisoned in Ephesus, an imprisonment that we don't know anything about except this letter? Uh, was it later in his life was he was, when he was in Caesarea and then on to Rome where he got his head cut off? We don't know, but we do know. Scholars agree the guy was in prison. And the immediate occasion for the letter that we know is the letter to the Philippians. If you ever read Philippians, great, great book, four little chapters. The immediate occasion was a fellow from Philippi and the little church there named Epaphroditus had come to Paul in prison. That's one of the reasons we think it may have been Ephesus because you can't imagine a guy from Philippi going all the way to Rome with gifts, but maybe it was just down the shore to Ephesus. Anyway, the Bible says that he had come there and he had brought, in, he had brought rather gifts for Paul. Um, Paul was in a prison cell that was no doubt cold, deprived, much like Frankel's concentration camp. And Epaphroditus had come to him and brought all these gifts from the Philippians. And while he was there, Epaphroditus had gotten sick, and Paul said he almost died, actually. After Epaphroditus recovered, Paul sent him back to the Philippian church with a letter, and that's the Philippian letter. And I, I want to just share a portion of this letter from its last lines. Uh, we know as chapter 4, verses 6 through 14, or 19 rather, and I want you just to look at this, and I'll say a little bit more about it, and then we'll receive our offering, and Pam's going to come up and close us with some talk about prayer. But focus your attention on this for just a moment. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. With thankful hearts, thankful hearts, offer up your prayers and requests to God. Then, because you belong to Christ Jesus, God will bless you with all the answers to your prayers. With thankful hearts, offer up prayers to God. And because you belong to Christ, God will bless you with peace. And I can't help the King James that comes out here that passes all understanding. And this peace will control the way you think and feel. Finally, my friends, keep your minds. Fix your thoughts. Set your affections. Frankel said... Everything can be taken away from you except this. Keep your minds on whatever is true. Anybody have trouble with worrying? Anybody have trouble with thinking the negative? Anybody have trouble, especially between three and five in the morning, of waking up and the wheels start turning about the business and the kids and the, you fill in the blank? Keep your minds on whatever is true, pure, right, holy. The next time you have an unholy thought, 
Paul said, here's some profound advice. Stop thinking that and think about something holy. The psychologist of the 50s couldn't figure out, should we start with behavioral modification or cognitive modification? Paul agreed with the final conclusion, yes. We think our way into acting, we act our way into thinking. Keep your minds on whatever is true and pure and right and holy and friendly. And somebody cuts you off on the road and you can just steam all the way home, just fester in it, just based in it, right? Has anybody ever been friendly to you? Take the bad thought and replace it. And think about somebody who's friendly and proper. Keep reading. Don't ever stop thinking about what is truly worthwhile. That means stop thinking about the things that aren't. Don't stop thinking about things that are worthy of praise. You know the teachings I gave you, and you know what you heard me say and saw me do. Follow my example. And God who gives peace, not always the answer to all your prayers, but the God who gives peace will give you something even better than the answer to your prayer. God will give you presence. The God who gives peace will be with you. The Lord has made me very grateful. It's a virtue. It comes out of the image of God. It's a gift of God. We have to cultivate it, receive it. But the Lord has made me very grateful that at last you have thought about me once again. I'm so, Paul just stopped in the middle of his theology and said, I'm, I'm thinking about this care package that I got from you, and I'm so grateful. I drove by the other night and thought, who is there? That I, I saw... Look, I saw y'all's vehicle with the trailer on the back of it, and I thought immediately, it's late. Somebody's cleaning us out. Because <laughs> that's the kind of world we live in, isn't it? Well, if you want to think of it that way, or we live in the kind of world where moms and dads, the kids in the youth group, take their spare time and paint walls and put in sinks and The Lord's made me so grateful that at last you thought about me. Actually, you were thinking about me all along, but you didn't have any chance to show it. I'm not complaining about having too little. I've learned to be satisfied with whatever I have. You'd get up and testify, couldn't you? amazing that we have people battling for homes good men living in tents and yet I actually believe y'all when y'all tell me because I hadn't heard of one of you complain and we've been friends for a good while now have you Steve not these guys I'm not complaining about having too little I've learned to be satisfied with whatever I have. I know what it is to be poor or to have plenty. I've lived under all kinds of conditions. I know what it means to be full or to be hungry. I set 
with my dad at the table again this past Christmas, and I watched one or two of the grandkids complain that the food wasn't just right, and Doug, I watched him go gray. He's 70 years old, and there is still a 12-year-old hungry kid inside of him. His grandkids, two generations removed, sit in his 5,500 square foot home that he builds because he builds them and sells them and he's, he dug his way out. One of 15 kids and the only one with a high school degree dug his way out. Walked off of a baseball field when he was 16 because his dad died and walked up the hill and drove a bus to make a few extra dollars for mom. Sitting there at that table filled with food he is a good grandpa. He, lives the, he leaves the parenting to us. But every time a kid complains about food, I watch that guy who never ate a school meal. No, no, no. He did eat one because his dad went and begged for free lunches. And the next day when my dad and his two sisters showed up, they had a special line that said free lunches, and they had to stand in a line by themselves with a sign that said free lunches. And he did it once and never did it again. I think about my dad, I think about my kids, I think about the difference that one generation between can make. I want my children not to live in 5,500 square foot homes, I want them to develop the virtue of gratitude. So that they could say, I know what it means to be full or to be hungry, to have too much or too little. Christ gives me the strength to face anything. It was good of you to help me when I was having such a hard time. My friends at Philippi, Paul didn't know he was writing the Bible. You know why this is holy? It's not because we call it the Bible. It's because it was originally a thank you letter. And thank you letters can become so holy that they're made sacred scripture by the church. And I say amen. Give me a good thank you letter over a theological treatise any time. My friends at Philippi, you remember what it was like when I started preaching the good news in Macedonia? It was hard times, actually. After I left there, you were the only church that became my partner by giving blessings and by receiving them in return. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you helped me more than once. I, and I'm not trying to get something from you, but I want you to receive the blessings that come from giving. I have been paid back everything and with interest. And sitting here in this prison cell, I am completely satisfied with the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. They are like a sweet smelling offering or like the right kind of sacrifice that pleases God. I pray that God will take care of all your needs with the wonderful blessings that come from Christ Jesus. I told myself I was gonna close at 11. I got one minute, give me two, and I'll take up this I'll take up the rest. You'd think after writing 7,000 sermons, I could write a 30-minute sermon, but I can't. So I always, get, I always write one and I have another one for free later. <laughs> if a person isn't thankful for what they have, Frank Clark said, they're not likely to be thankful for what they will have. It is a dangerous thing to focus on what you don't have 
especially if you spend your time focusing on what others have that you don't have. But it is a helpful character building thing to focus on what you do have even in the absence of other things, even in the absence, even in the presence of pain. Last little story. Gerda Wiseman, like Frankel, was a prisoner in a concentration camp. She wrote of her experience in her book that I have and somebody has borrowed it from me and I would love to have it back if you're here. It was written in 57, 12 years after she was released from the death camp. She's still alive actually, I think she's 91. Look her up, Gerda Wiseman, Gerda with a D. She wrote the book, it's called All But My Life because they took everything but her life. In 95, a little short film called One Survivor Remembers, you gotta see it. One Survivor Remembers. It won an Emmy and an Academy Award. In her early memoir, she recalled an episode one spring when she and her fellow inmates were standing at roll call for hours on end. If they collapsed, they would be taken and often killed. She said, we were standing there nearly collapsing with hunger and fatigue, and we noticed in the corner of that bleak, horrid, gray place that the concrete had broken, and one by one, thousands of heads turned in that direction through the hours, and we looked at the only splash of color on those vast, horrid acres. A little flower had poked its head through a crack in the concrete. Thousands of women took great pains later as we made our way back to our dorm. Thousands of women in stride took pains to avoid stepping on the little flower. It was the only spot of beauty in the ugly and heinous world and we were so thankful for it. We spoke of it all night long. Later in a radio interview that I had the privilege of hearing, she said when people asked me, why did you go on? You, you read her story, she was one of those who made the death march 350 miles, 4,000 women were marched 350 miles as the Allies encroached upon their present location to another camp. 120 out of 4,000 women made the journey. Gerda was one of the 120. Why did you go on? She said, every time someone asks me that, there is only one picture that comes to my mind. The moment was when once I stood at the window of the first camp I was in and I asked myself if I, by some miraculous power, could have one wish granted me, what would it be? And she said, standing there, starving and cold, looking out of that window, thinking about Aladdin's lamp and one wish. She said, with almost crystal clarity, the picture that came to my mind was a picture at home. My father smoking his pipe. Her father died in the camp. 
My mother working at her needle point, she and her mother between the first and second camp were bifurcated. Someone pushed her mother this direction, she this direction, and as a young girl, she screamed, teenage girl throwing herself after her mother, and one of the Jewish rabbis picked her up and threw her in the cart where they had sent her, saving her life because her mother's cart was to the death. My father smoking his pipe, my mother working at her needlepoint, my brother and I doing our homework, and I remember thinking, my goodness, it was just a boring evening at home. I had known countless evenings like that, and yet this day I knew that this picture would be, if I could help it, the driving force of my survival. Oh, what's left to say about gratitude today? <laughs> we have so much to be thankful for. A little gratitude development this week. Take 60 seconds in the morning and read those 12 or 13 verses that I just read to you. Take a few minutes every morning Philippians 4, 6 through 19. Write it down and take a, it won't take 60 seconds. Read them and before you leave the house or approach your children. I'm telling you, some of you would have had easier trips to church this morning if you'd have taken 60 seconds to read whatever things are pure, lovely, good, Instead of spending your day crying about your spilled champagne, we might spend our day thanking God for clean water. And then at the end of the day, take another 60 seconds, real, real quick, and jot down one or two or three things that you're thankful for that day. Just jot them down. Put them away. And wake up tomorrow and do the next do that the very next day. Let's try that. Would you do that? Six days. Read the same scripture every day. Gratitude, the French proverb said, is the heart's memory. Lord, help us to remember better. Help us to remember that the real beauty of life is dads with pipes and moms at the needle point and kids doing homework and 50 cent watches that are worth more than Rolexes. Make us mindful, make us thoughtful, Lord. Help us to think right that we might think right. And bless these folk as they give their offerings sacrificially that this good place might continue to be a harbor and a haven for those that are hurting. Pray this in Christ beautiful name for which we are thankful is above every name but at that name every knee would bow and tongue would confess that Christ the giving one is Lord we pray this in Christ's name amen